Welcome to our water episode of this Natural Capital series as part of Fast Sounds, where we're looking at different natural capital assets and their value to Scottish agriculture and the rural economy, including the opportunities and risks for the future. You can listen back to all the previous episodes in this series and the other podcasts we produce for the Farm Advisory Service on any podcast provider. Please like, follow and subscribe and leave us a review. I'm Ian Boyd. I am covering for Rachel, who's usually the host of this series. Normally, I'm the producer in the background. Our editor is Ross McKenzie. Our executive producer is Kerry Hammond, as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. This is episode four of our Farm Advisory Service National Capital Series. And today we're joined by Rihanna Rees, Seaweed Academy Coordinator at SAMS Enterprise, and Fiona Salter, a Senior Environmental Consultant with SEC Consulting. Today, our focus is on seaweed and agriculture and what's the future potential. And we will specifically be discussing the provisioning services of the coastal environment, including seaweed and kelp farming and its wider benefits to the farming community. Rihanna works at the Scottish Association for Marine Science as their Seaweed Academy coordinator. She's a seaweed researcher, passionate about the growth and expansion of the seaweed industry and its role in a rapidly developing blue economy. Her thesis was Seaweed is Sexy, the Consumption and Utilisation of Seaweed Throughout British History and the Marketing that Surrounds It, which I'm sure we will get into later in this episode. Fiona works for SEC Consulting as a Senior Consultant in the Environment Team. In her role, she focuses on the improvement of natural capital in the rural environment, exploring and disseminating methods and practices to improve ecosystem services. She's also currently producing material to highlight methods and practices to help mitigate the impact of water scarcity on farm and looking at the benefits of catchment management to improve water management on farm. Welcome both and thank you for joining us here today. We've given you a quick overview of both your bios but Rihanna is there anything you'd like to add about the work you do and specifically what it is the Seaweed Academy does? Well, so, uh, yeah, the Seaweed Academy essentially was born out of this idea that we've done so much research into seaweed over the, the last couple of decades. And, you know, it's so big in Asia and it's starting to reinvent itself in, in the UK right now. Our relationship with the marine environment is changing. The way we view things in the water is changing. And seaweed's offering a new opportunity for things. So we noticed that there was this disparity between the research being done and it being applied to the industry. So the Seaweed Academy was born in a way so we could disseminate this information in an easy way for people to understand and then apply it to their farms. Because, surprise, surprise, no one wants to read a bunch of academic papers when learning about how to do things. Uh, So we've we've been able to work really hard on this and I've just come into the end of of the project now. So I've had the last year putting course materials together and we've started delivering the courses now. That's been really exciting. Great, that sounds really good. And yeah, we'll cover a lot of that as we go through this podcast, I'm sure. Fiona, is there anything you'd like to add? Maybe what is this project you're working on about the catchment management on farm? Well, we are working with the Farm Advisory Service to look at different projects around Scotland that are working with a group of people within a catchment to improve water quality. They've all come to the project for different reasons, whether it be um, improving the fish stocks in the river and the, the health of the river, preventing soil erosion, improving water quality. And it's just how all the different people that use a river can come together to work together to improve the whole catchment. 
So we are looking into projects like that to show others who may be interested in following similar projects how it's done. And we're doing this through video, podcast and publication case studies. The coastal or seaweed is becoming more and more apparent and it keeps popping up. So I'm quite excited for this conversation today. Yeah, same. Yeah, really interesting topic. So this podcast is part of the Farmer Advisory Service and obviously a lot of farmers do share their, their boundaries with the coast. But as we go through this, I really want to kind of explore why this is relevant and interesting to, to farmers across the country and what the benefits of kind of seaweed might be for them. So can we start at the really beginning, really basic kind of question, what is seaweed and what is the difference between things like kelp and seaweed and seagrass? How would you define that, Rihanna? So seaweed is macroalgae, basically. So it's a number of different plants that grow in the marine environment, in the intertidal zone, uh, in the deep sea. You've got three different branches of seaweed. Uh, You've got green seaweeds like ulva, um, the kind of salad looking seaweed. You've got red seaweeds uh, like dulse or dillisk and pepperdulse, which is one of my favorite kinds of seaweed. It tastes like truffle so it's got an interesting flavor profile as well Um, and that's really high in in protein and got lots of nutritional benefits and then you've got the big kelps that your brown seaweeds so those are those really long fronds that sometimes wash up on the beach but they're much more deep in the ocean which is why they grow so big Uh, and you also have other brown seaweeds like racks that that you'll find on the rocks so with the bubbles you know like uh, ascophyllum and things like that i mean you talked there a little bit about the the taste of it, the, the protein quality. I mean, what are the uses for it? I go to Sligo quite regularly, for example, and in Sligo they have seaweed baths there where you can go and sit in seaweeds full of kelp and stuff. So it's got these kind of properties that are meant to be good for your, your skin and your kind of overall health. So what is seaweed really used for? What's the main uses for it? Well, I mean, the way that we used it in the past and the way that we're using it now, is it's all quite different. So Uh, In the past, we used to use it for potash, so we used to burn it on the beaches. Uh, You can see around Scotland, if you go out to some of these islands, um, these kelp kilns where they used to dig holes in the ground and burn seaweed and use that potash for things like glass making, soap making. It was used in the war as gunpowder, loads of different applications for it. And then it was also used as fertilizer and for animal fodder in the long winters now we're using it in very much similar ways but finding whole new applications for it as well so we are still using it as animal fodder um, we do use it for things like bioplastics material manufacturing we're using it for its health benefits now that we understand the health benefits much better it's got so many micronutrients it's packed full of iodine protein Uh, all these other things so it's really really useful in our diets if we know how to apply it but a a lot of the issues I guess with our relationship with it is that we always saw it as a kind of food in times of desperation and now it's being rebranded and remarketed as a superfood in in a sense so it's it's finding that and renewing that relationship and that excitement about product like this. I didn't know it had protein. Yeah yeah especially all the Green seaweeds, yeah, they've got really high levels of protein. The brown seaweeds, not so much. Noting that. 
it's interesting, you know, that it's been a thing, like you say, it's not a new thing we're trying to use here. It's been around for a long time. And maybe the, the value of it and the kind of the ways we adapt it and use it is maybe changing over time. But how big an industry is it in Scotland? And is it something that's actually maybe a bit bigger overseas? Oh, absolutely bigger overseas. Yeah, I mean, Asia, Southeast Asia produces 99%, 95 to 99% of all seaweed around the world. Now you eat it every day. It's used for everything. Uh, in Norway, very much for animal fodder. So they'll take, they'll take it, they'll ferment it, and then feed it to their animals. So we are not as far ahead as other partners. I think we have this story and this reputation uh, for having a really strong relationship with the sea. So I think people around the world think that we're a lot further along than we are. Marine Scotland did a did a report earlier this year, actually, and tried to analyze where the scope is and the scalability of the, of the industry is. And, you know, at the moment, it's worth around half a million pounds, not very much. It employs between 30 and 50 people around Scotland. And I think there's so much scope to get loads more people interested and invested in it. And there are already six farms harvesting and deploying this year. So we're seeing huge growth in, in a short period of time. And as long as there's continued innovation, continued improvements, optimization in, in the processes as well, but we'll really see that take off. Do you know why historically it's not been as popular? It just wasn't, I'm going to say fashionable, or was it just the resources weren't there or the infrastructure wasn't there? Well, I mean, I think that when, before the industrial revolution, we did have this relationship with it. We used seaweed for all sorts of different applications, but then as soon as the industrial revolution came, we, we started looking more at agriculture and focus all of our attention on land instead of at the sea. So we, we sort of neglected our relationship with seaweed. And that's why it's so much harder to then go back to it now because our technology and our advancements haven't really changed that much in the last hundred years for that reason. Uh, and in Asia, there is a lot of innovation, but they have such low labor costs that nothing's really changed there either. It's, it's very cheap to produce, it's very cheap to manufacture and also cheap to process for that reason. I remember growing up, there was an alginate plant not far away from where I lived. And yeah, they were processing seaweed. I think it was mostly used for the food industry and for kind of the pharmaceutical industry and things like that. I think that's what they were using it for. But like you say, in the past, you know, if you go up to Lewis or Harris and, and you see the old um, Lund rigs, you know, where they used to use it to fertilize the land and use it as a soil conditioner to, to help them grow crops and on what's generally quite poor soil in some places so you, you did mention earlier about farms i don't know if you're talking there about specifically seaweed farms or if you're thinking like agricultural farms but if we're thinking purely on agriculture what are the kind of main benefits to farming we can see that in terms of fertilizers you know you need high potassium you need high uh, nitrogen contents uh, you need high phosphorus and seaweed's really, really good at drawing that out of the ocean. So, I mean, if we look back uh, 40 years ago when we found saltpeter in the mines and, and potash and we started overusing them in our agriculture, what ended up happening was all this fertilizer runoff would go into the ocean and it would upset the balance of the ocean. And now we can see these huge pockets of dead zone. And seaweed is, is really, really good at drawing that back out. It's, it's kind of this nutritional sea sponge. And uh, it creates a much more circular economy. 
to draw things out and bring them back onto the, onto land and uh, reapply them as a fertilizer or even as a bioactive compound. So I think as well, when we're looking at the future of agriculture, there is at the moment, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but a, a phosphorus crisis. And at the current rate that we're using phosphorus, which is key to all food and all food security in the world, we've only got about 100 years left of, of mineable phosphorus. And then we're stuck, basically. Uh, and, and it surprises me that no one's really talking about this. Uh, and it's not much more serious, I guess, because it's 100 years away. It just kind of feels like climate change all over again. And if we can start to tap into seaweed now and start creating that circular economy early on and, and really tap into that resource, uh, then we've got the potential to, to create a really secure food environment for our futures. Yeah, it's maybe like you say, it's maybe just a good thing with the way we think about oil and gas. You know, it is obviously has a a period it's not going to be around anymore, and there's a period we should stop using it and look at something else. So yeah, it's maybe this idea that is 100 years away feels quite far away for some people, but actually it's not. Like you say, it's we have really to kind not. of come up with these other solutions. Back on the climate change thing, is it quite good for carbon sequestration? There's some potential there, definitely, or just ecosystem services in general. There is a lot of research being done into the carbon potential. I know you mentioned seagrass earlier. Seagrass is really good because just like terrestrial plants, it draws it in and then locks it away in a, in a much better way than seaweed. You get a lot of detritus. It doesn't stick around for very long. You get a lot of species that, that are only there for a year and then, and then die off. But if you've got a suspended seaweed farm, some of this detritus gets washed away, gets sequestered in the deep sea, you know, below a thousand meters. And, and, and that's really good as a residual impact of your seaweed farm you can sequester. I've seen some reports uh, between five to 10 percent of your of your farm uh, is then sequestered in the long term. Uh, and that's just as, as a residual impact. Uh, there are, is talk about people sinking seaweeds, doing things like that, that that's largely untested. It could affect the seabeds we, we don't really know what the impact of that would be so at the moment there is potential there and, and there's going to be a lot more research being done into it going back to some of the ecosystem services which is a theme that comes up time and time again in this series especially with kind of the climate change the stormier winters or things like that that are potentially happening does seaweed provides any form of coastal defense to the land yeah, so seaweed uh, is a wave dampener. It does create barriers for coastal erosion, essentially. So you do get seaweed in large enough quantities uh, will significantly reduce the impact of, of those oceans and those waves and coastal erosion. So it can, when used in the right way, be a great resource for uh, reduction of the impact of those storm events. Yeah, I guess even more reason to kind of look after it and protect it and make sure it's there doing what it's meant to be doing. So, Rihanna, talking about the growth of this in the Scottish economy, what is the capacity that Scotland could have within this field? Like, Because obviously you're talking about Asia's um, shallow coastal line and our sh- like steep drop away on our coastal line. What's the scale? Yeah, we've got massive potential for scale here. I mean, the UK in general, we've got 10% of the uh, of Europe's coastline. Um, so we do have loads and loads of space. And we've got all these small islands uh, off the West Coast that, that can operate around. 
so I think when you think about scale, it does feel like oh, maybe there's not so much space, but we have so much coastline here. Uh, and as long as it's you know up to I'd say 25 meters, a 25 meter depth, you, you're fine. At the deeper it goes, the more engineering you need, and then the more expensive it becomes, uh, especially if the current's quite extreme, where, which it can be in some of these parts. So it's just being aware of things like that. But there, there's so much scope and there's so much uh, space in in the ocean. Um, for this, it's just whether there are those routes to market and there is that guaranteed sale, which is what, what Crown Estate and what Marine Scotland will be looking for. And it sounds like it, there's potential to scale up across the country. It's not just the, the West Coast or the East Coast. It's potentially widespread in our coastal environment. Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there's seaweed operations propping up in Wales now, in the south of England. There's talk about it in, in York and Norfolk and over on the east coast of, of Scotland and up in Aberdeen and up in Kinloch Bervian and Loch Inver kind of area. So you, you're seeing it everywhere um, and the potential for it to, to crop up everywhere. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see from a feasibility point of view which areas work better than others and why. Can I ask that? Maybe it's a potentially silly question, but what is like the crop rotation of, say, planting seaweed for like livestock feed like how long does it take to grow and like what's the process on harvesting it I yeah it's a good question <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the species that, that we cultivate here in scotland and they're, they're really the large kelps that, that's to get your biggest biomass yield and the grow out time is around six months so you'll usually plant and then deploy your plants around now so October time uh, is usually the best time, depending on the weather. At the moment, the weather's not been great. So <laughs> a lot of the deployments have been delayed, but it, it's, it's around now. And then you'll grow it out until about April, I'd say April, April, May, before any of the biofouling organisms start to attach themselves. And then you, you'll harvest that and, and dry it or ensile it as they do in, in Norway and then use that for, for feedstock or for fertilizer. Or whatever. So it is something you can farm is there certain types of or species that you farm particularly or can it be quite a big range of different types of seaweed yeah there's a lot of research being done uh into for example cultivating at sea red seaweeds and green seaweeds at the moment we're only cultivating brown seaweeds uh, as i said you know it's your biggest biomass yields you're going to get more for your money and it's it's a lot easier the life cycle is a lot easier to understand so it's much easier to, to grow and, and harvest, whereas red seaweeds and, and green seaweeds are not as easy to, to understand. And they definitely need shallower waters, intertidal zones, whereas Scotland, you know, we, we do have that sharp runoff. It tends to get quite deep quite quickly. Um, we have much less opportunity for, for utilising intertidal zones than in Southeast Asia, where they have quite shallow warm waters as well. So I guess if you're thinking of doing it yourself in terms of what you're looking for, in terms of a site, I guess it varies then on the species. Would that be correct, or, or the use perhaps of it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, your your location is is a huge impact. It has a huge impact on what you'll be doing, especially as climate change is changing the the temperature of the water. You know, there are some species that used to grow in the south of England that now don't because uh, it, it's warming very rapidly, and we're we're seeing that you can only really grow them, uh, you know, from the north of Wales up. Uh, so it's just being aware of things like that. You know, is there a risk in the coming years for, for crop failure for those reasons and then how do you mit mitigate or minimize that risk because obviously like warming climate is a big issue right now 
what is the potential effect on growing seaweed in Scotland? Like what like kind of temperature increase would have quite a significant effect on the seaweed growth? Yeah, I think a couple a couple of degrees would, would make a huge difference. Seaweed really likes ten degrees, slightly lower, and we get up to kind of fourteen degrees around here in the summer, and then in the winter drops down to uh, you know seven seven degrees ish, which is ideal. But if we if we saw that it didn't drop below ten for any reason, uh, or if the grow out period was was shorter because about ten degrees and less was only around for you know t- two months or something then there are a few species that, that just would not like that at all. I mean, can you harvest wild seaweed? Or is there environmental concerns with doing that or permitting things you have to consider? Well, the Crown Estate has rules in place. Uh, it has limits on the amount that can get wild harvested around the, the coastline. So it grants leases based on harvestable amounts. So at the moment, there are quite a few farms that do hand harvest um, or, or mechanically harvest. And you've got, for example, U.S. ASCO, they, they harvest Ascophyllum on the, the Isle of U.S. You've got Mara Seaweed over near Edinburgh and, and Fife, and they hand harvest seaweed to use in their products. And it's great to hand harvest it. It, it works very well, but you're not adding those additional benefits, the additional carbon sequestration, for example. The additional potential homes for from fish or, or increasing biodiversity you're not adding anything to the system uh, you're instead just taking it away so, so those are the kind of considerations when applying that to your business model when looking at it as a whole you've mentioned a few times the use of a livestock feed so mm. is there any particular benefits of using seaweed as a feed as opposed to other sources Yes, yeah, so you might have seen that there's some news at the moment going around about methane reduction. So back in 2016, there was a study done. Basically, the story is that in Australia, some farmers' cows kept breaking free, going down to the shoreline, eating seaweed. And what he found was that the cows that were eating the seaweed seemed to have much better health. They came out better than their other cattle that didn't. Uh, and so he went to one of the uh, universities and said, can you tell me why? Uh, and so they did a bit of research into this and found that actually that the seaweed that they were eating was this red seaweed called Asparagopsis and actually found that it reduced methane production in some cases up to 90%. And so now they're starting to look at this red seaweed and how it can be applied. And, and the study has then been repeated in Austria and other countries and, and it's been found to be accurate yes this does reduce methane production so they're growing it around but unfortunately it's not local endemic species to to scotland uh it is a tropical species so we're now looking at uk species and if the same thing can be extrapolated for for uk specific species and if so which ones and and how can we make the most use of that i think that would make a huge difference yeah i mean it sounds like that could have an absolutely huge impact and benefit everyone on what is like you say a really big topic and a really big issue that everyone's trying to tackle at the moment so i mean it sounds like there's absolutely loads of ways that all farmers and the agricultural sector as a whole can benefit there is a few other resources on the fast website there is a fast tv episode in series two episode six which looks at improving grassland performance and turning seaweed into a crop and there's also a case study called Seaweed is a Fertilizer, 
links to both of these will be provided in the show notes below. So if we now think a little bit about water quality issues, because I'm presuming for this to be a valuable product, you really would like it to be grown in a really clean, healthy environment, really good high water quality. So does kind of things like river water quality impact on the coastal ecosystem, does that have an impact on seaweed growth? Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, you know, you don't want too much fresh water. So if you're putting seaweed near estuaries, you need to make sure it's not too brackish because it can kill off your stock quite quite early on. There is risk, again, with deployment like right now. I think there's it's finding a weather window where you know it's not going to get washed out by, by fresh water soon after you deploy it. So it's being considerate of things like that. If you're using it for food as well, uh, for food for human consumption or for livestock feed, then you need to make sure that you don't have things like E. coli, listeria in the water, um, that it's not affected by high arsenic content as well, because that is something that you do find. It, it absorbs a lot of heavy metals, cadmium, lead, arsenic. So just making sure that you're aware of that. Uh, what we found in our farm, so we have two farms at Sam's that we operate from, one off the Isle of Lismore and the other near the Isle of Kerrera. And both of those, uh, we found quite similar heavy metal content. You know, it's not, it's not too high. Whereas I know some other farms further north have found uh, higher levels of, of heavy metal content, and that might just be because it's near some silage or or, or near somewhere where there's a heavy runoff from different impacts from ex- external systems. So it's just being aware of things like that. Ken, is that possible to like treat and remove, or would that crop be then non-usable? depends whoever's buying it requires you, you can reduce the level of arsenic in the seaweed by blanching it and we found that blanching it for 10 minutes can significantly reduce the, the arsenic content however it also leaches out a lot of the nutrients uh, and so could risk losing some of the really important derivatives of, of that seaweed that you want to hold on to but in other areas as well seaweed is being used as a kind of cleanser for the water so you've got bivalves for example and, and there are things like imta systems so this this integrated multi-trophic aquaculture where you have for example salmon farming or, or, or fish farming next to seaweed and bivalves like uh, mussels or oysters and what they do is they kind of feed into one another so you have the runoff from these fish farms high levels of nitrogen and, and other impacts and then the seaweed absorbs the inorganic nitrogen and the mussels absorb the organic nitrogen so that they're creating this kind of balancing system which is really great and i've noticed that for example australia has been talking about using this to stop the bleaching of the great barrier reef and putting seaweed farms in places of estuaries and they won't be using that seaweed for anything they're literally just growing it to clean the water and make sure that you're reducing the amount of nitrogen that's getting to those great barrier reefs and i think maybe we're going to see a bit more of that as well is plastics an issue like microplastics or general plastics? I mean, in the sense that you do find microplastics on the surface of the seaweed. We have found that we do do some microplastic analysis. I wouldn't be able to tell you much more than that right now, but we also do have microplastics that come off the seaweed farms as well. Like with any farm structure, you need good quality rope, and this is going to be polypropylene rope, which can cause microplastics or things fraying and going into the ocean unfortunately and and that's an impact of the aquaculture industry in general really. In terms of the kind of fertilizer runoff and nutrient runoff I mean it sounds like there's quite a lot of crossovers there Fiona with the kind of work 
you're involved in and the kind of good practices that farmers can do to kind of manage this kind of things in their catchments on farm? Yeah, well, we've been working or discussing a lot of projects around Scotland. And this year that we've been focusing on a lot of fisheries um, who are trying to improve fish stocks in rivers and working with land managers to enhance the rivers and for benefit of all. So the rivers are generally increasing in temperatures. So the fish are not being able to survive or can't find shade because a lot of the trees have been removed or um, vegetation has been removed from river systems. So a lot of projects around Scotland have been working with farmers to reinstate rivers of how they would be in a natural state, be it from leaky dams to wetland areas, the right tree in the right place, all these different ways to improve how land managers can work beside a river to improve the land that they work on and the quality of water in the river even putting in like buffer strips to retain soil on your land and and that reduces soil going into the river streams which would then reduce material going into the sea which i presume would have a knock-on effect to the seaweed and reduce the fertilizers or in the nutrients that are going into the river and trying to retain as much as we can on land and reduce it going into the river to improve the ecosystem services of the whole catchment all very important stuff. And if you are looking for more information on ways to manage water on your farm and minimise diffuse pollution and stay on the right side of the rules, the Farming and Water Scotland website is a good place to start. A link to that is provided in the show notes below. So through this series so far, the, this is episode four, we've looked at some pretty unique and special habitats. We've been to peat bogs, we've been to Scotland's rainforests. You can listen back to those episodes after this one. Can you explain a little bit more about the biodiversity and habitats of seaweed and kind of what it provides for the kind of natural world? Yeah, I mean, seaweed, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of otters uh, <laughs> hanging around cuddling seaweed. There is a lot of schools of fish like to hang around in seaweed. It does offer shade and opportunities for for things to, to feed or at least fish to feed on the things that feed on seaweed etc etc so you do get in theory improved biodiversity we, we need to see the studies come out from that because at the moment it's very much a hypothesis that seaweed farming improves biodiversity in the area but we will start to have evidence i think for that and and really see how much of an impact it has and then you know there's the potential for the government to apply credits for nitrogen credits carbon credits, phosphorus credits, and then also biodiversity credits. I think all of those things could, could be applied to seaweed quite easily, as long as we've got the science to back it. Well, I mean, that's really interesting. So we are going to be talking about kind of green finance in episode six of this series. So are there any financial benefits? You've kind of mentioned a few of them there, but I guess also in terms of the growing of the sector, is there any kind of potential economic benefits? Yeah, I think it's challenging at the moment. I, there is opportunity here for areas of the country that are being kind of significantly impacted by depopulation, meaningful jobs. Uh, so these coastal communities, they are struggling with work. You're, you're seeing depleted fish stocks. You know, there's a, a lot less acceptance for a lot of these jobs as well. So seaweed is providing itself as an alternative to some of these previously very well integrated industries and so I think from an 
socioeconomic point of view, it, it has a lot to offer as long as these jobs are seen as meaningful. They are quite long, arduous winter work. It is, it is tough. At the moment, as a business model, it's very difficult to become profitable because it's such a new industry, because it's challenging, because there are so many barriers to entry. But I think as we start to see this innovation grow, if people do start to feel connected to it or want to see a kind of scale that's that's feasible and possible for a long-term benefit, then we will start to see the price come down and, and the economics sustainability really grow. Something to, to keep an eye on, definitely. And like mm. you say, I mean, throughout this, we've talked about all the benefits that the CB does, you know, it seems to have an awful lot of benefits, you know, beyond the kind of financial stuff, all the ecosystem services and kind of health benefits and, and things like that. There's, there's a lot going on there. You might not know this, but do we import a lot of seaweed from like Asia and Norway? Well, the UK is the biggest European importer of nori, which is the, the sheets that we use for sushi. Uh, we do love sushi here. Um, <laughs> and I, I do hate it actually when, when I say, I'm going to go foraging for seaweed and everyone says, oh, are you going to make sushi? Like, no, that's not, it's not the same species. It doesn't do the same thing. But we do because we like Japanese food. We like this idea of kind of being cosmopolitan and things. And, and that's the, the real challenge here. It's how you get people to understand that actually every seaweed's different. We've got 650 different species of seaweed in the UK. And oh, they've really? all got different. 650. Wow. Uh, yeah. And they're all, they're all fine. None of them are poisonous. Some of them have very high levels of, of arsenic and iodine, so maybe not eat too much. But... <laughs> In general, you know, they're, they're all there and they're all edible. So it, it's how do you convince people that actually, yeah, some of them might not taste so nice, but <laughs> I want to try the truffle one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's definitely a wild ride. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a future episode. We can just sit around and try different <laughs> types of taste taste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If you do want to find out any more information on seaweed and the work that Rihanna and, and Sam's does. We do have links to both the Seaweed Academy and Sam's Enterprise in the show notes below. So we always try to end on this question. Rihanna, would there be something that's really exciting or interesting at the moment or something you're looking forward to in the future in the world of seaweed and that's really kind of promising and, and hopeful? I mean, I think in general, just the, the momentum that's behind it. I think there's so many people in this field at the moment or trying to achieve the same thing, which is to grow this sector and grow this industry and be really competitive globally. I think Scotland's got the potential, the provenance, the reputation in the world to be a leader in this field. And I really look forward to the opportunity to be part of that story. And I, I think, you know, watch this space. Absolutely. It sounds like it's a huge potential. The aquaculture sector, generally, the Scottish economy, and like, like we talked about, there's huge benefits for agriculture and farming for, for using this really important product. I'd like to thank both Rihanna and Fiona. Thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Really interesting talk on this topic, which, to be honest, I didn't know an awful lot about. So I've learned quite a lot today. And thank you all for joining us on this Natural Capital episode. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow our podcast wherever you normally listen to them. Leave us a review to let us know how we're doing and get in touch if you want to find out any more information. You might also enjoy some of our other shows, such as Stock Talk, Thrill the Hill and Agriculture. 
There's a wide variety of other podcasts and resources available on the Fast Sounds pages and the Farm Advisory Service website. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, which this time will be focusing on arable natural capital. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.